Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, hello, friends, and welcome to episode 126 of the Burden of Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Breon. Today's guest is a return guest, and his name is Todd Palmer. Now, I'm not going to go deep into his bio because we do that back in episode 84. And I highly recommend, if you haven't listened to that episode yet, uh, go ahead and stop here and go back and listen to episode 84. Uh, we do revisit some of that in this podcast, but we also build on a lot of the things that we really just touched on in that last episode. Uh, just a really brief primer. Uh, Todd is author of the book From Suck to Success, and he shares the story of how he went from over $600,000 in debt to being named by Inc. Magazine as one of the fastest growing companies in the U.S., hence the name From Suck to Success. He shares some mistakes that he made along the way, some tips to help you keep from making those same mistakes, and uh, some new information as we go through this podcast. So again, Episode 84, if you haven't listened to it, stop here, go take a listen. If you have, keep going because I'm going to go ahead and shut up right now, get out of the way, and let you get into this outstanding interview with return guest, Todd Palmer. Todd, thanks for being with us again today. Earl, thank you so much for the opportunity to come back and meet, spend time with you and your audience. I'm, I'm very, uh, very fortunate to be here. Yeah, no, I mean, I loved it, brother. You know, the... The last time we talked, you know, just for the audience, uh, you know, we'll have the sh- the link to episode 84 in the show notes. So, you know, go back and listen to that. You know, we shared a lot of great information in that one. And uh, some of it I'll ask you to recap here in just a second. But, you know, the first recap, if you will, since we spoke the last time, uh, that phrase burden of command, does it mean anything different to you or pretty much kind of the same as, as uh, last time? You know, when when I think of the the phrase burden of burden of command, you know, it, it it's one of those situations, Earl, that I find that with the people that I coach and the leaders that I spend time with and the CEOs I get to speak in front of, is the burden of command continually changes for some of them. What they thought was the burden of command maybe one, two, three, five, ten years ago has shifted and changed as marketplace conditions have changed. Certainly, the burden of command around. Uh, Human capital has changed. It's become a candidate-centric market, not an employer-centric market. So for companies looking to hire, there are, there are 7 million more jobs and there are people for them. So if you're an HR or you're a, the chief talent officer of your company or the CEO or the entrepreneur looking to bring on talent, that has significantly changed in the last you know 18 to 24 months. Uh, so there's it's now something we have to be of service to our audience as the, the person seeking the candidate versus you know, we are, they should be lucky to have a job with us. So that has changed quite a bit. The, the landscape around how people currently work has changed significantly. Do we, are we going to have a hybrid model? Are we going to have everybody come back into the office? Are we going to have everybody stay home and work from home? And then the burden of command is how do we measure their success? What are the KPIs? What are the results? That has shifted and changed now to the point of if you're in a space 
Like accounting, for example, do you even need people in your office or can they work from home because we can measure them on the work product they create? So the burden of command, my friend, seems to be ever-changing, ever-evolving. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with that anymore. And, you know, I've had a couple of guests on here since you've been on that you're in HR and, you know, they kind of touch some of the same things that you were talking about there, especially as far as uh, staffing and coming out of uh, coming out of this pandemic mode that we've been in. And, uh, you know, one of the interesting things, I'm curious with the folks that you work with, if you've seen this, uh, that they talk about is a lot of organizations are taking advantage of this remote work to really kind of expand their talent pool and maybe, you know, reach into some of these markets that they haven't been able to get talent from because, you know, say some kid from Jackson State, uh, Mississippi, you know, they're great. They're a great engineer. They're uh, a great coder or something like that, but they don't have the resources to be able to pull up stakes and say, move to New York or California. So right, right. They're, they're leveraging that. Yeah. It, it, well, that, that's that's absolutely happening, and it, it, it's it's really leveling the playing field for talent in some respects. If you are a company or a business sector that can have a, a remote workforce, a client of mine, his entire workforce is remote. They always have been, and that's allowed him to bring in talent from the United States, Mexico, Canada, and then to go overseas. He's found a great talent pipeline, for example, with with um, English-speaking uh, American citizens who are deployed overseas in the military, so that specifically the, the wives of soldiers. He's able to get them work doing customer service work, talent acquisition work that they couldn't get to on their own from the living room, making you know great money, serving you know serving communities and working on schedules that work best for them and their families because the work they do is work product focused versus hours of input. So it's really allowed a lot of employers who are able to do that to go get talent from places they never would even even considered, you know, five years ago. Mm. No, that's great. I mean, especially being a, a vet myself, I love hearing organizations looking for ways to help out military families and you know, I mean, I think that's that's such a smart idea because it's, you know, as I'm sure you know, but this is kind of more for the listeners, uh, you know, these families are deployed literally in every time zone across the globe. So for a, a business like that, it makes sense. You've got access to somebody who can provide customer service pretty much 24-7. So that's great. Oh, absolutely. And, and one, thank you for your service, Earl. I always appreciate it when, when I can talk to a vet and express my gratitude because I know I enjoy some wonderful freedoms due to the, the time, effort, and, and energy people like you put in so we could be safe here. Um, and, and going back to the, to the military veterans and the spouses there, I think it's, it's even bigger. If you've got a, a military spouse, for example, who's feeling, you know, she's from, say, you know, San Diego, California, and she's deployed to Germany with, to, to be in support of her husband. Well, she's, you know, she's away from family, she's away from friends, she's away from her community, and then she's on a military base where she can certainly establish a new community, when I know that happens, but there, her, her sense of, of purpose can be shattered or adjusted. Her sense of worth can be shifted. Whereas, you know, through work, a lot of people do find a lot, a lot of satisfaction. And so because, you know, clients like my, 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 my friend Tom are able to do that, offer those opportunities for that, that person who feels a little bit isolated or a little bit alone overseas to reconnect with a work community that allows her to, to create a new tribe through the work she, she provides. I think it, it, it not only is it financially helpful to her household, but I think it's also psyche, the, the, her psyche is going to be improved 
and, and her self-worth sometimes, her, 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 her value to her community is increased because of the work that's going to be provided to her. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and there's the other side of that, too, which uh, kind of falls in line, but kind of a slightly different aspect of it is, you know, the the marriage, right? That That's what you just laid out there, what you just described is one of the top reasons why military marriages have such a high uh, divorce rate, because the spouse, whether male or female, they're asked to pick up and, you know, maybe they grew up in, you know, Podunk, Northeast Tennessee, where I'm from, and... They're expected to take whatever skills they had there and go to, say, Spain. Right. And and they're out of place. They're away from family. They're disconnected. And that creates tension in a marriage. And and so what I love is, you know, I, I don't know if this individual thought it through to this level, but I would guarantee you if you did some type of uh, analysis, they're saving marriages through this program. Well, I, I love what you're saying, and, and if I hasn't, I will mention it to him. Actually, I'm going to talk to him on Monday. I'm going to mention it to him to see if he's thought about that, because you know, as I talk about in my book, from suck to success, you know, the 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 our self worth is often arrived at through the work we do sometimes, and then what happens is when we're feeling less than, we we have this thing called imposter syndrome that comes up, or as I like to talk about it, you know, for my entrepreneurial CEOs, it's our itty bitty shitty committee, and it t- tells us how we're not we're, we're not enough. We, we, we never will be enough. We, we need to be all things to all people all the time on all subjects. And, and I, I argue that imposter syndrome and a lot of things I talk about in my book not, are, not just apply to people who are, are entrepreneurs or CEOs or leaders in organizations, but they apply to leaders of households. And in our households, you know, you've got mom and you've got dad or sometimes you've just got a single parent and they have fears. They have self-doubts. They, they don't want to show up ATV. They, they struggle being authentic, transparent, and vulnerable. All those things come into play. So when, when someone like my client Tom is able to help someone have an improved self-worth, uh, add financially to their household where they're contributing, they are creating connections in a tribe so they're not just spouse-reliant, especially for someone sent overseas, for example. All those things go into a person feeling better about themselves. And, you know, Every leader I run into has to do that to deal with their imposter syndrome has to do inside out leadership. The work they do comes from within them and into the communities they serve, whether it's their family as a community, whether it's their, their business, whether it's their, their employer or, or the, the company they've started. That's where they show up. And to your point, if they feel better about themselves, they're going to, they're going to save their marriages. They're going to save their businesses. They're going to save themselves from, from the negative fears of imposter syndrome and self doubt. Yeah, 100%. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned From Suck to Success, because uh, the book is out now. I don't think it was when we spoke the last time. Uh, but I love, you know, the title, because that's your story, right? You went from <laughs> suck to success, right? That Very much so. Very yeah. much so. So if you would, real quick, uh, you know, just kind of a brief overview, because we covered it fairly well in the first episode. But, you know, the suck piece, What what's the suck piece in From Suck to Success? You know, uh, for me, it was very much learning how to be a CEO, learning how to be the leader of leaders, learning how to be a, a good parent to my child. And for me, you know, I had to really work through first and foremost, figuring out my mindset as a, as a human being. And so where, where I take the reader through this process. So the book starts out talking about not my business being $600,000 in debt and the shifts I had to make as a CEO to make the Inc. 5000 six times. No, it starts off as me, me and my shortcomings as a father. And, and the book starts off by talking about how my coach 
helped me reconnect with my son. We hadn't spoken essentially in three years and we put a lot of pieces in place. The work I did and how I had to show up and change as a leader of my household with my boy to be different for him, to have a relationship with him that I could now be proud of. When, when I was doing the work with my coach, Danny Friedland, my, my, I live in Detroit. My son lived uh, you know, just south, of, just south of Los Angeles. He would have gone to Hawaii if he had more money. I think he didn't want to get that far away from me. Now, as I'm talking to you here in 2021, my son lives 10 minutes from me. I just saw him this weekend. We speak mm. two or three times a week. So we've really taken our relationship from suck to success. My business has gone from suck to success. And it all started with me doing inside out leadership work, me showing up differently, me dealing with my imposter syndrome, me, me going from a, a scarcity mindset to an abundance mindset, and, and ultimately me taking a look at all the things in my life that were happening. I would argue at the time, if you knew me back in 2006, that, that life was unfair and you know, the, the story we tell ourselves, why does God hate me kind of stories to things now are happening for me, not to me, both the good and the bad. How do I process them? How do I put them into the active learning cycle, which closes every chapter of the book? How do we use that active learning cycle to pivot out of all the challenges we face in life so that we can grow our businesses, we can grow ourselves, we can improve our families, and we can lead a, a, what I call an extraordinary life. And an extraordinary life, if you look at the word extraordinary, it's a singular thing. So what's extraordinary for Todd may be different than what's extraordinary for Earl, but they can both be extraordinary because we create a singular experience for extraordinary being for us as the individual. Oh man, no, I love that. I mean, you said a lot there that that was just so spot on. And you know, for the listeners, the the full title of the book is "From Suck to Success: A Guide for Extraordinary Entrepreneurship." And and I really want to focus on something there you you just said about extraordinary and and how that's something different for everybody. And I really do believe that's one of the things that is really wrong with society right now, right? Is is everybody really, well, not everybody, most people want to measure success with the same exact ruler. You know, they, they, they want to, I'm not successful unless I have a mansion with six exotic sports cars or, you know, whatever it is, right? But success is really something that is very personal. You know, success can be you know, just having a nine to five job that pays fairly well, getting the bills and you have a happy, healthy marriage and home life, right? And you know, it, I think you make a really great point. And I, and I suffered from this. I thought in order for me as a human being to be happy and to be successful, it had to become from external validation, money, cars, whatever. And the reality is for most of the entrepreneurs I know is when they get all those things and they look themselves in the mirror, they say, okay, now what? Because my emptiness inside is still there. My, my feelings of not enough are still there because I have a $20 million company and my buddy has a $50 million company. So I'm not a success yet. Mm-hmm. It's really taking a look at how do you want your life to, to be a success, which is self-defined. And so for me, here's how I used to think success had it. I used, for my goal back when I started my company back in 19, late 90s, I wanted to be a $20 million staffing company. I wanted to have a, ho- a house in Michigan a cabin up north. Uh, I wanted to have multiple cars. I, I wanted to you know, do all these, have all these things. Well, as I got some of those things, my emptiness still was going on. And, it, and it, it was, here's why it was going on, because I was chasing the almighty dollar. I was chasing the external. I wasn't working and dealing with my internal things I needed to improve upon, my limitations, my shortcomings. So uh, you know, I've had a coach in my life since 2006. I still have a coach in my life today. And I got a coach in my life because I needed to pivot what success meant to me. So I worked with a guy named Simon Sinek for two years to come up with two words. For me, success comes off of my purpose. 
And my purpose in life is to improve lives. It's two words. Very simple to eat, very simple for me to explain, very hard for me to keep focused on at one point. Ultimately, I had to figure out that I can improve lives from anywhere I want. I can improve lives maybe by being on your podcast today. Someone will hear something, I'll, something will land with them, their lives will be shifted and different. The thing I love about coaching my clients, especially now with Zoom, is I can see them. When they have those light bulb moments, those breakthrough moments, they're, they're changed. Working with kids, you, you teach a kid something new and, and their eyes flash. It's, like, it's the best experience ever. But ultimately, as, as I figured out what my purpose in life was, which is to improve lives, then I pivoted into what success meant to me. And success no longer was about the external, but it was about the internal. So for me, success is doing what I want, where I want, with whom I want to do it as often as I want to do it. And I can do that for a, you know, a, a several thousand dollar junket, or I can do it for a walk in the park at a Wednesday afternoon at two o'clock with my family because I've chosen not to work that afternoon. I feel successful. So for me, I can create success wherever I go. Yeah, no, that's it. And, and I love, I love what you just said there, especially about the Zoom uh, calls. You know, I mean, the, the old days of, of coaching, you know, via just telephone, it was great. You could do a lot of impact, but, you know, being able to pick up on those physical and, and uh, the nonverbal cues uh, is huge. You know, I, I was working with a gentleman just recently and, um, you know, we were talking about, he was having some issues at work and um, he he was telling me about how he had just went through a uh, divorce after, I want to say it was 20 or 25 years of marriage. Wow. Wow. And, yeah. And, and I, I saw, you know, when, as soon as you said, you know, I just went through a divorce, you saw that stop and kind of choke back some tears. Sure. And, and we were, we had just been talking about how he really didn't know his coworkers all that well. They didn't take the time to get to know them. And I stopped and asked him, I said, how many times have people that you work with seen that side of you? Great question. Yeah. Well, and his response gutted me even more though, because he said, what are you talking about? And I walked him through it and I said, look, you're telling me that you've worked in this organization for, uh, at this office for 12 years. And you've already shown me more vulnerability in a 45 minute call than you've shown your coworkers in 12 years. Why is that? And his response, this is the part that got me. He goes, because in the 12 years, no person has talked to me for 45 minutes straight. Mm, gotcha. You know, there, in, what I hear is a huge opportunity for your listeners in this though, because it, as leaders, we have the, a, an amazing opportunity within our companies and within our departments. If we don't own the company or our areas of responsibility, to what I call what I talk about in my book, and that's creating a safe environment for psychological safety. Mm -hmm. Which, when we when we create that psychologically safe environment, just sounds like with, with you did on your call with him, Earl, is you allow someone to do to do four things. You allow them to be seen, you allow them to be heard, known, and then accepted. You create that that in your company. You create that in your household. You're going to have much deeper, richer relationships and much deeper, richer conversations. And if you want to go back to return on investment for, for, for businesses, you're going to have more profitable companies and you're going to have a longer tenured staff because it's, as your person indicated, that's really hard to find. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, so this is kind of a good segue into the book, right? Because you, you've used the acronym already, the ATV, Authentic, mm -hmm. Transparent, and Vulnerable. You go into that in, in uh, chapter two. And again, readers, our readers, listeners, <laughs> I highly <laughs> encourage you to become readers and go get a copy of From Suck to Success and, and check these things out that uh, Todd and I will be discussing here. 
But I like the way you put this about learning to be authentic, transparent, and vulnerable. Because I think a lot of times those three words get kind of misconstrued as meaning pretty much the same thing, but they're really not, right? Yeah, well, I have to give vulnerability credit where credit is due. Certainly, uh, Brene Brown is the, the worldwide leader in that category, and she's, she talks extensively about that. Um, but when we're authentic, we're transparent. See, I see, for me, I, I sequence them in a very specific reason because for me, being authentic not only allows you to see and hear me, but I also have to know, my, know thyself as well. What's it, you know, wh- what do I stand for? What are my core values? Who am I? And I'm not going to necessarily just go along to get along because that creates artificial harmony. So I know for me, for be, to be authentic, I have to show up as my true self, which means less masks, less defenses, less walls. So then to be transparent, then when I'm being authentic, I want you to see me and I want to be seen by you. So I, again, I have to create space in, in our relationship, in our conversations to do that. And then when I'm vulnerable, just like when you saw the, the gentleman uh, on your screen having that emotional reaction, I'm going to let my emotions come out. I'm not going to let my, my fears hold me back, especially during COVID. My, a lot of my leaders were trying to be ATV and they were really struggling because they weren't sure how to communicate in an ATV way with a lack of information. They weren't sure when their businesses were coming back. They weren't sure when their, their, their companies were going to return to profitability. They weren't sure about money. And that uncertainty paralyzed many of them. And what happens for our staffs and, and the people who care about us is when we don't share that information, they create their own narratives. In the absence of communication, the audience, whether it's your, your kids, whether it's your company, for me, whether it's you know speaking from stage, in the absence of communication, the audience creates a narrative and rarely does that narrative serve you well. They create the narrative, for example, during the, the COVID times where, okay, I haven't heard from my boss in three weeks. Oh, we're probably closing the doors. I'm probably going to be jobless. When the, the boss doesn't communicate with you because they're afraid to tell you, I don't have any answers. I don't know. So there, there's so much around ATV that, that comes out of the communication from the leaders to the tribes, from the leaders to the families, from the leaders to the other leaders in the organization. And when we're authentic and we're transparent and we're vulnerable, what that does is it triggers a response from the other party where maybe they judged us before for being you know, a ruthless tyrant as a boss. Like, oh my gosh, that person feels, that person hurts just like I do. When we're ATV, we create more connections through connective languages, through the body language, through the tonality of how we show up that allows people to, to feel a sense of community and a connection with us where they want to be in our space, they want to work in our companies, and they want to be part of our lives. Mm. That That is powerful, and I love it because – you know, it's it's almost like you've been in one of my classes there because I say the exact same thing about information. I got, you know, one of the shields uh, that I talk about is uh, be a power broker. Information is power. And I make that same point. If you don't share information, if you don't push that information down to the lowest possible level, they're going to do what you just said. They're going to fill it in with with gaps. And, and, and here's the thing, because I want listeners to make sure that they picked up on this, right? Because it's easy to say be authentic, transparent, and vulnerable, but it's scary as shit, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. And so, so first of all, I love that you said that because we're like, oh, oh my gosh, you, you know, you've been you wrote this book about it, and you talk about it. Like, I'll go back. I hired a coach in in nineteen. Oh my gosh, when was it? In two thousand six, I hired my first coach, and I hired my coach because I couldn't show up. 
I couldn't be authentic, transparent, and vulnerable because I thought you're going to judge me. My staff's not going to like me. I've got to have tough conversations. All those different things, which none of it was true. So nobody teaches us how to be authentic, transparent, and vulnerable in schools or in universities or even in our first couple of jobs. We have to learn those things, but it's on us to learn them because when we learn them, we then have more enriching conversations. We have more connected language conversations. We have deeper relationships. Our, we, and the thing of it is, and I'll, I'll be fully, fully transparent with your audience, when we're ATV, it's like good branding. And what does good branding do? Good branding brings in our ideal clients and customers and drives away our non-ideal clients and customers. Well, being ATV will we'll create a new tribe for you, but there are people in your life who aren't going to be able to deal with it that will no longer want to be as, as heavily engaged with you potentially. And here's why. Because they're the energy vampires. They're, they're the ones who, who aren't going to be able to show up and be ATV with you. So your, your authenticity, transparency, and vulnerability will make them highly uncomfortable. That's their problem. That's their issue. Be ATV regardless of how you're received by the audience. Now, there's a part, and I always caution people when they go like, I want to be authentic, transparent, and vulnerable. Pick your audiences. Pick your tribe. Pick the people you are that way. When I go on stage and tell people about the worst day of my life, and I tell them being $600,000 in debt, making the Inc. 5,000 six times, paying off all that debt, and all the mistakes I made, I practice that because I know someone in the audience is going to think, think potentially something negative about me. And you know what? I decided that's okay because someone in the audience is also going to relate to that. Someone is going to potentially want to engage me for coaching services or, or hire me to come talk to their groups because in that authenticity, I'm being seen, heard, known. I'm not sure I'm going to be accepted and I'm okay with that. So it's sometimes one of those situations where we're going to be ATV, pick your tribe, kind of like a rope, let it out, but don't, don't not, not do it because you're scared because being scared is not a good enough reason. Yeah, no. And, and again, what's so powerful about that is, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, maybe you've had different experiences here, but you probably run into a lot of people who say that they want an ATV team, but they're not being ATV themselves. <laughs> and that just doesn't work, right? Oh, well, then you're fraud. Absolutely. Right. You're, you're a poser and a fake. Uh, you know, and, and so the best example I can give you that is of this. You know, if you're going to be ATV, especially within your companies, be ATV to your core values of, as an organization. And your core values, a couple things about core values that I really truly believe in. Your core values should be so powerful in your organization that you as the leader are willing to hire them, someone by them and fire someone by them. If you're going to hire someone who, does, who has your core values but doesn't have the skill sets, that means you've got to train them up to what you need done. If you're going to fire by them, they may have all the greatest skills in the world, but their core values are misaligned with the organizations and they can't stay because they will become toxic through the organization. And it really, when you terminate them or they leave, it is addition by subtraction for the organization. Secondarily, if you're a leader and one of your core values, your core values should have a story. Every core value should have a story, not just, you know, we are, we are all about quality and we're about um, honesty and integrity, all those things. If there's not a story attached to it, then it's just, it's, it's aspirational. It's not inspirational. Quick story around that is I had a client, they were a short-term client, and here's why they were a short-term client. On the wall of this company were their core values. So the guy was, you know, the leader was trying to demonstrate them at a certain level. And the top one was honesty. I was in town for three days. The first night, he and I just went to dinner. Second night, myself, the CEO, and his wife went to dinner. And the third night, as I was flying, he goes, hey, let me drive you to the airport. Let's grab a drink on the way out. And at, at, you know, at the bar restaurant, it's, it's him and I. And this woman comes over, and she happens to be his girlfriend. Wow. And they were getting together later that night. And I'm like, oh. So she leaves, and I said, you know, help me understand something. How is the behavior of you having both a significant other wife and, and a girlfriend 
tie to your number one core value of honesty and transparency. And he just stared at me. And he's, he said, well, you know, you don't understand what it's like. You don't understand. I said, let me ask you a different question. Does your wife know about your girlfriend? And he said, no. I said, then you're not, you're not, you're not honest. You're not authentic. You, I go, and, and, I, and I literally fired him as a client because he wasn't living up to his core values. So for me as a coach, you have to live up to your core values for me to work with you. It just, because it, it makes you a fraud. It, you're not showing up real. I don't know who you are. I don't know who I'm dealing with. And your staff picks up on those things as well. So just be honest. Just be truthful. Just be who you are in regards to your core values. And, and it's really that simple, right? I mean, we, we like to overcomplicate the process. We like to hold all these staff meetings. We like to make it a long, drawn-out culture exploration session and all these good things. But, I mean, it's really just as simple as what you said, right? It, it really – you know, it's simple, but it, it's simple until it's not, right? It's, right. It, it's – you know, it, it's a matter of if you're not – if you're out of alignment with the values of right and wrong by society's standards – then you're going to have a really hard time bringing in. So, for example, this leader, if he's if he's dishonest in his household, then if I'm one of his employees, I'm going to wonder: Is he dishonest in the company? And if he's dishonest in his household, does he does he by proxy create a tribe of other dishonest people? All those different mechanisms can come full into play. And then, how do we deal with them? Because as a coach, I, I I have to just sit there and wonder. You know, you talk about. The, the, the values you want in your clients, you want your clients to pay you on time, you want to get paid a fair a fair fair market value for the services or, or products you provide, but yet you're dishonest at home. It, it, to me, it just feels out of alignment. Maybe I'm wrong, but it just it doesn't land authentically with me. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with you 100%. When I was, uh, when I was in the Marines, I had a top secret clearance. I uh, was responsible for handling top secret hard drives and all these kinds of things, right? And one of the things that they did that as uh, you know a, a young uh, marine that I didn't understand, but as part of the vetting process, uh, they did a credit check. I'm sitting like, what does my credit have to do with my ability to to keep secrets and handle sensitive material? Mm -hmm. Well, I had you know, luckily I asked the uh, S6 officer, and he told me he said, look, he goes, we don't care necessarily about your credit. We care how vulnerable your credit makes you. Right. If you're ten thousand dollars in debt, what's to keep some using military terms here? What's to keep some Russian operative from coming up to you and saying, "Hey, we're going to write you a check for ten thousand dollars if you accidentally drop that hard drive, and now right. your debt goes away." Right. And I think that's what uh, what you're saying here with this individual, right? Is is we're talking about that relationship credit here, and this is one of the shields that I talk about as well. Is you're always on display. So oh, for sure. Yeah. So, so what happens when he slips up and an employee sees him with his mistress and there's a promotion and say, hey, you know, it'd be terrible if somebody found out about your extramarital affair, but you give me that promotion and I never saw it myself. Right. And, and it's just, it's, it's that, that dishonesty piece right there. It just sets you up for so many so many pitfalls that are just going to completely derail your organization, everything you're trying to do. And people don't think to that level, right? Well, they don't. And, and they and they don't. Is it the same reason why they, they don't do a lot of other things? Because of pride and ego. Right. And pride and ego is the number one reason why people don't get the help they need. I mean, I, I had clients who, who struggled mightily with, with challenges around addiction, for example, during COVID. 
Well, they, they, they were willing to put their pride and ego aside and get the help they need. It's not, not from me. I, I'm not a, an addiction specialist, but that they, they got with people who could assist them. Um, the clients who don't, you know, someone said to me the other day, why doesn't someone hire you as a coach? I said, oh, it's really simple because pride and ego will prevent them from getting the help they need and they see it as an expense, not an investment. Why do people go to university? Because they see it as an investment, not as an expense. They can complain about the price, but they're really doing it because they want. They, they tell themselves the story that if I get it, if I'm more educated, I'm more marketable, I will have more options, which makes me more employable. All those things come into play. Mm-hmm. No different than hiring someone like you or my, you or I as a coach. You're hiring us as an investment. You're hiring us to help you grow your your life, grow your business, grow yourself. In that process, we're going to ask you tough. You're going to be tough conversations. There's going to be challenging challenges around the, around certain things. So how do we deal with that? All those things come into play. And if you're going to be ducking and dodging and weaving and bobbing and not telling me the coach the truth, then I can't really help you because I can only operate on the information you provide. Yeah, no, I love it. And, and, you know, using your story as an example, you know, I have friends who are business professors and I have friends whose kids are going to uh, business schools. I live in Indiana, the Kelly school of business down at IU. Um, But nobody teaches how to get out of $600,000 worth of debt as part of their curriculum. <laughs> you know, they, they teach you theories and, and, and ways to uh, theoretically not get $600,000 in debt to begin with, but nobody teaches you those skills about how to get out of there if you find yourself there. Right. Todd's been there. Todd's done it. That's the part of the value that Todd brings to you that that university will never be able to fulfill, Right. So yeah, I have a funny story about that. <laughs> so Go for it. I got invited to speak at my alma mater for university. And I, they asked me to come and speak to the entrepreneurship class, which didn't exist when I went to college. No one really taught you how to be an entrepreneur. You just did it and suffered the slings and arrows of defeat sometimes. <laughs> right. And these kids are asking me, you know, I gave, I, gave the, I gave my speech and the kids are asking me questions. And one of the kids said, well, so I have a business plan. It's, you know, 46 pages long and I'm going to take it to a bank. What, what do you think I should do and, and, why, and why would the bank and how can I work with a bank? I said, well, what is your idea? And he told me the idea. I said, well, I, I don't know if your idea is investable or not from a banking perspective. What collateral do you have? He goes, what do you mean collateral? I said, well, do you own a home? No. I said, so what, what, what are you going to pledge? Well, I've got nothing to pledge. I said, all right. So let me tell you where you really get the money. You don't get it from a bank. You get it from one of the three Fs, friends, family, and fools. They will invest in you, and then they will invest in your, your your idea. And the professor is just like, oh, my God, oh, my God. Uh, he's like, danger, danger, danger. Don't tell them that. I said, I said you guys, I go, you're, you're 22 years old. You don't, you, don't have, you don't have any assets. You're not inventing. These kids, weren't. they didn't have like a proprietary software they were inventing or anything like that. And I said, so you have an idea. So who's going to believe in your idea? Your friends, family, and fools. Those are the people who are going to invest in you. The failure rate of a business is like 80%. Marriages only fail at 50%. And I'm just going on and on. The professor goes like, the kid's like, oh my gosh, thank you so much for telling me the truth because that's not what I'm hearing from the school that I'm paying the money to and everything else. I'm like, they, they never invited me to come back and talk about it. But I, th- <laughs> I thought it was important for them to realize that what you're being taught and how you, you get money as an entrepreneur may be a little slightly different than do a business plan, go shop banks. <laughs> no, I, I love it. What, what was popped in my head, and this, this may date both of us here a little bit if you remember this, but uh, the old Rodney Dangerfield movie, Back to School. Yeah. 
Yeah, where where he goes through that whole speech in the business classes. Well, see, you got it all wrong. The first thing you got to do is you got to pay the the teamsters down there so they can get everything taken care of you first, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, and it's you know I, I I'll pull a little Thornton Mellon off. It's like you guys, it doesn't really work that way. And you know how many businesses do you have to do, and how does it work, and all this different stuff. And these poor kids are were spending all the money. I said, so what is your what is your risk tolerance? Is anybody taking a risk tolerance profile? No. Like, well, all right. How many of you are married? And a couple of you. Are, I said, how many of you told your significant others about your business idea and do they, do they buy in? No. I'm like, you guys are are, are going to bomb because your spouse isn't going to support you when you can't when you you got to put money into the business and take it out of the household. That's a problem. Number two, when when, when life comes at you and business comes at you and stuff comes at you, how are you going to pivot? You're going to go to your business plan when you're not going to make payroll. You're not, or you can't pay for payroll. Well, we're going to find the money then. And they, these kids are like, oh, ah. but it is hitting with a tidal wave of reality. And I always say, someone said to me the other day, you know, I'm going to, I'm looking at hiring a, hiring a business coach. Give me some questions I should ask them. I said, well, the first thing you want to ask them is how long were they a CEO? How did they grow their business? And tell me about the three worst days of your career, not the top things you've done. I, I, we made the ink 5,000 six times because I needed to get out of debt. Not because I wanted to make the list, but because we had to turn the business around. I had to get paid more and get paid faster. That's how it worked. We, we, we kept looking and searching. We hockey stick the business. It wasn't like I sat around in you know, a stuffy boardroom and said, my vision is someday we're going to make the Inc. 5000 not one time, but six times. All follow me. No, it didn't work that way. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think that's it, right? Is, is uh, again, going back to that measurement of success. Like if you had have started with making the list as your measures measuring stick for success, there's probably a pretty good chance that you never would have made it. Right. Yeah. So I love it. And I love the fact that, that at least that class had the opportunity to hear those lessons because I'd love for you to be able to go back and, and, and see how much success that class had versus some of the other ones, because I would imagine in that however many hours you were there, you know, they probably got a good two or three years worth of education in that short period of time. Well, I'd like to think so. And like as I was working with the working on my book, they um was talking to the so I got eight, I always tell people it took me five years and eight rewrites to get my book out. Mm-hmm. And I'm at the finish line and it's just not it's not gelling yet and, and things feel out of alignment. So I heard a person, her background is she was an editor at, at large publications, used to be a writer at Time magazine, and I and I spent a decent amount of money to, to help me kind of bring bring across the finish line. And she said, well, who, who you really, who's your audience for the book? And I said, the audience for the book is that, that startup entrepreneur or that entrepreneur who's struggling, who feels alone and isolated, who no one's told them the truth and now they're angry at the world because that was me. Like yeah. no one in school said, this is what's going to happen. No one at university said this is going to happen. I said, I want them to see that you can get out, you can go from feeling like you suck to being successful if you pivot your mindset and you start asking generative questions, you start expanding your circle of people you talk to, and you don't just go into the process of, well, you write a business plan and then you have a marketing plan and you go out and get $300,000 seed round money and people buy into your business and then you grow it. And you That's great, but that's, that, that's the unicorn story. Here's how it typically works. It's like you leverage your ass, you, you, you live off credit cards. Here's all the, like, this is what happens. And then there's a tipping point. And then you learn something and then you try something. And then it, finally something of uh, the 10 step process, three steps of the process work. You keep those and keep iterating. It's the active learning cycle. That's why I put it at the end of every chapter of the book so that people will realize that you drop any problem in there. It's, it's recognize what your purpose is, recognize what's not working for you, 
create a you know have an intention not an expectation around that what's not working for you create a strategy around that intention not expectation and then iterate the hell out of this thing to, to turn this thing around or grow the business or turn your life around or, or improve this relationship because that's really where it comes from it, there, there's no this isn't a i don't know life isn't a movie where we just somehow magically hit, hit a stroke of luck and, and, and the business turns around that's not at least that's not that's not what happened to me and i want to put that in the book so people could realize that it's an iterative process with a lot of stops and starts that it's this crooked line of success to get us from point a to point b yeah, no. Well, I love that. And that's a great segue there because uh, chapter uh, four is the E4 process that can improve your mindset, leadership, and results. And, and step one on that is identify what's not working. And again, because that ego piece there, I think that may be one of the hardest things for people to really get behind is what's not working. Because a lot of times, you know, maybe it's somebody else's fault. Maybe the market just doesn't get what I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. Well, if the market doesn't get it, it's not working, right? <laughs> so during the COVID times, I was working with a guy out of San Francisco, owned a restaurant, and he was just, he was just, I mean, the restaurant was shut down. He, he was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to lose everything. He was very much hijacked because COVID was happening to him and not for him. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. We had, a, we, we had a call and I said, so let me understand what your options are. I started talking through it. I said, he was very practical. Well, I can go to my landlord. I can get rent, rent abatement. Maybe I can you know, lay off staff, things like that. So let me take you down a different path for a second. Just entertain me. I said, why did you start this restaurant? Well, I have a background in culinary. Blah, blah. I said, I get all that. But you could have done anything with that. You could have gone to work for somebody. I said, why did you start the restaurant? And he was like, well, you know, when I moved here, he was when I met my wife, we live in a small town. And when, and when we want to go out for a date, we can never find a good restaurant to go to. So it really dawned on me that what people want is a really great date night experience. I'm like, great. Let's stay there for a second. You want to great, create a great date night experience. COVID has shut the business down. People can't come to you. How do you take a great night, great date night experience to them? Mm-hmm. And he goes, I never thought of it like that. Pivot forward a year later, he's done $3 million in, in high end at home pizza delivery experiences where the marketing campaign was, we're going to bring the date to you. Yep. I mean, the average pie price is like 45 bucks. I mean, we're not talking cheap pie. Um, and, and he goes, I, he goes I've, I've got a tiny space now. I work with a small staff and I'm printing money. Yep. He goes, I, and, I'm, and I'm delivering on my core purpose of creating a date night. That's what we can do when we decide that to use the active learning cycle to pivot our businesses and pivot our lives. Oh, no, I love that. That is a great story. And again, you know, it was, <laughs> it was sitting there right in front of him. He, he was that close, right? Right. Yeah. But he, but he, but he, and he was that far away because he was stuck. So, yeah. Yeah, you know, when I, when I was working on the book and, and trying to figure out, you know, h- how do I help people get unstuck? Cause that's what my coaches still do for me. I, I still get hijacked and triggered. I get stuck by things. How can we help people understand that, you know, when our imposter syndrome flares, for example, and we're, we're, we're being told we're not enough or, or we're, you know, the, the, the world is against us. The marketplace conditions are screwing us. Whatever stories we're telling ourselves, we have control over the narrative we feed ourselves. And if we just, you know, I always use the analogy that if we, if we as a human being decide our life is a car and when things aren't going well, our imposter syndrome is driving the car. Well, if we just switch seats with it and we take the, the wheel of our life, 
And what the, the imposter syndrome is still going to sit in the passenger seat and it's still going to talk to us because at one point it did keep us safe. Imposter syndrome is just a derivative of don't put your finger in the light socket and look both ways before crossing the street. It did want to keep us safe, but then it got out of control. And we realized that when, once we, we use the active learning cycle, we, we realize more things are happening for us and not to us. What will magically happen is that imposter syndrome sitting in the passenger seat will be a little quieter. It maybe won't talk as often. Maybe sometimes it won't even be there. That's how we learn to manage through it. Yeah. Well, and here's the dirty little secret, right, about imposter syndrome is all those things are true. Sure, somebody wants to see you fail. Sure, something is working against you. I mean, th- those things are are true. They're not necessarily because they're they're targeting you, but it's basically life. That's the way life works. Mm-hmm. It's like like you said. There, it's, it's it's what do you do when all that's going on? Do you absorb it, soak it in, wallow in it, or do you sit there and say, okay, but I'm still going to keep doing what I'm doing because I love it this much. Well, it, it really is like I talk about the first chapter of the book. By the way, uh, anybody who's listening, go to my website from success.com and I'll give you the first chapter for free as my, my thank you for listening to Earl's show. But in the first chapter, I talk about the Stockdale paradox. You know, yep. Jim Collins was, was brilliant in, in when he did his book, Good to Great, and found Admiral Stockdale. And Stockdale paradox, just like you're talking about, is you know what? My brutal reality is X. My brutal reality is COVID is hitting my business. I will find some way to make this the defining moment of my career. I, I, I will have an unwavering faith that somehow I will survive this. And it, it may be like the pizza guy. You know, His high-end restaurant closed. He pivoted based upon his purpose and core values into creating a, a different type of dining experience at home for people. And I haven't talked to him in a year. We just had a short-term engagement. But who knows what he's doing now? But he it, once he adopted the Stockdale Paradox mindset, put it into the active learning cycle, he was able to get himself unstuck. I think the greatest... The greatest lesson I learned from both of my coaches, both Greg and Danny, was they were coaching me so that one day I could coach myself, yeah. so that I could use tools that I received from them to, in, in any part of my life. And it certainly doesn't make the coaching I received to be obsolete, but now I approach it with more curiosity, like, huh, well, my, my circun- current circumstance is this. This is my brutal reality. What am, I, what am I here to learn? What am I here to pivot out of it? How can I make this a story one day for a client? Or a story one day for my son. I don't know, but there's something. There's something here in this misery that I can work out, so that I can recognize that it's happening for me, not to me. Yeah. No, I love that, and you know, I think that was one of the things we chatted about on the last podcast. We were talking about Stockdale. Is you know, uh, he he's a stoic. That, that that stoic philosophy right there is is I can only control what I can control, and what I can control is me. That that's all anybody can control. I can only right. control me. Um, and, uh, so, so no, I love that. I love that a lot. Um, and that's such a great story because, you know, again, that, that's the thing, right. That, that separates people that, that measuring stick for success, your, your individual that you were talking about there, their idea of being a successful uh, person in the food industry was having a packed restaurant Mm -hmm. when his real measurement of success was, how great of an experience do I provide during that date night? Mm-hmm. And, and, and yeah, so, um, man, we've been chatting here for a good while, but I got to ask, um, you know, kind of fast forwarding to to chapter eight, designing your ultimate life. And I think we just kind of brushed up on it quite a bit there, but I love the title of that chapter. And um, I, I, I think my listeners would like to know, 
uh, how can they design their ultimate life? So the, the, the great thing about designing your ultimate life, as we talked about earlier, is really, it's such an extraordinary experience. And using the word extraordinary in the way it's designed and written, that's how it's used in pop culture. Extraordinary is a singular experience. And when we're designing our, our ultimate life, I'm a big believer in the work that was done out of Stanford, um, but, but there's a great TED talk about you know a life by design, the Stanford talk. Check it out. And, and really, it's very much using the active learning cycle of, so for example, designing your ultimate life, you may say, hey, I, I, I may want to start a company. Well, great. So you recognize that. I may want to start a business. I may want to, I want to, may want to open a restaurant. All right. Well, then how, how do you then write out what you want your restaurant to look like and who do you know who can go help you with that? So, well, I don't know anybody in the restaurant space. Well, great. Do you eat at restaurants? Yes, I do. Well, why don't you talk to the guy behind the counter? Maybe he knows the owner would talk to you. And you would just get, it's, it's a combination really to, to, to design your ultimate life of what, what do you, what is your core purpose? What do you define as your success? Who can then help you achieve that? You don't do this is not an isolated experience. Then how can you drop in the, 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 the active learning cycle? How do you then iterate through that? How do you try some things? Low risk. So if you want to, you want to open your own restaurant, well, low risk conversation. Talk to three or four restaurateurs. Talk, hear what their challenges are. Hear what their successes are. Hear what, hear what they love about it. Hear what they don't like about opening a restaurant. If, you, if, you're, if you're a morning person, well, maybe opening a, a bar and grill for, to be working from you know, 6 p.m. To, to 2 a.m. is not for you. Maybe consider opening a, breast, a breakfast restaurant. Things like that. Talk through that, iterate, learn forward, and continue to, to drop in new information. The thing I love most about the active learning cycle is it's you can you can stop and start it, and you can drop in new information at any part of the process. So your your life by design is very much your journey. It's you figuring out what you want, the way, how do you want it? What are you willing to sacrifice? What who are you willing to talk to? What are you willing to go do? Gather that information, gather those data points. So that you can really architect the life by design you want. You, you know, I'm working with a CEO right now. She has decided she wants to move from CEO status to chairman status in her business. So we're literally designing her company now to not have anything to do with her on a day-to-day -day basis. That's going to require her to look at her business differently. That's going to require her require her to interact with her staff differently to put in a C, replacement CEO. And then how does she manage that? All these things are about a three to five year process. So that in five years, her business was, she'll still own her business, but she doesn't have to show up every day. She manages by reports. She, she leads her team differently, but it's all starting today in 2021. So that by 2025, 2026, she has the life by design she seeks. Mm. Love it. Love it. And that is, that is such a great, uh, a great process there. And, uh, you know, it, it's one that, that I think people should start sooner than later, right? Well, you know, that's the funny thing of going back to so my original business, my Inc. 5000 company is a company named Diversified Industrial Staffing. And we placed skilled trades talent around the United States. Welders, machinists, people who worked with their hands and made things to help keep America running. And I would talk to these guys in the interview and they would make this statement of when I retire, then I'm going to live my best life. When I retire, then I'm going to go see the world or travel or golf every day or whatever their, whatever their joy was. Well, what happened to a lot of them was by delaying that gratification so much and delaying that satisfaction so much, by the time they got it, a lot of them were really dissatisfied and came back to work part-time. Mm. And I would talk to them like, what happened? If I only knew I should, I should have tried living my best life while I was working, 
then I, I wouldn't, you know, I can only play so many rounds of golf. And I found out I really don't like to golf and I'm a bad golfer. So now what do I do? And so I always say to people, start now, start sooner versus later. You know, that's one of the great things I think about millennials is they're willing to try new things at a much more rapid pace than sometimes the, the Gen Xs or the baby boomers versus, you know, and how do we help them? And so yeah. I, I think to your point, Earl, start designing your life by today now. What do you want? And try a bunch of different things. Keep what works, discard what doesn't, and give yourself that power to, to not beat yourself up and call yourself a failure versus recognizing that every time I try something and it doesn't work, I haven't failed. Because every time I try something and it doesn't work, I've learned. And I've, every time I learn something, I'm another step along my path to being successful. That's again, to, to credit where credit is due, that's the biggest takeaway I ever got from the work I've done with, with Danny Friedland. He's like, failure is just a construct. Yep. It's just a construct. It's a definition word designed by a human being. Because really, if you take a look at it, I tried something and it didn't work. Well, what happened? Well, I've learned a new way it didn't work. I mean, thank goodness, you know, Edison tried the light bulb 10,000 times to finally get it right. That's how it, it's, it's a learning process. It's not, it's not a failing process. Yeah. No, I love it. I love it. It was, uh, there's a quote by uh, General Stanley McChrystal. He said, a, a great leader can let you fail without becoming a failure. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, that's exactly it. F failure, failing is extremely critical to, uh, to growth. And, and, and people just miss out on that for the fear of failing. Well, it's, it's, it's really part of, uh, it's, I call it the law of, the law of avoidance. I credit this in the book to Mark, author Mark Manson. And the law of avoidance is I would rather immerse myself in my identifier of who I think I am versus actually step out into the world and try something that I may not succeed at. You know, when I was working on the book, I used to tell people, oh, I'm working on the book. And, oh, good for you. But part of it is like, well, I don't know if I ever want to get it done. What if nobody reads it? What yeah. if the book stinks? What if, what if you know, it doesn't have any value? So I would get into my own wrap-up of the law of avoidance. So the best, truly the best thing that happened to my coaching and my speaking practice was COVID because it took me off the road. I lost three speech, six speeches in three different countries over a two-month period. So I had to sit my butt home and finish my book. Well, yep. that's the best thing that ever happened because I could no longer avoid because I could no longer make the excuse of how busy I was. I'm like, okay, I got to get this done. And I got it done. And it's the best thing that's ever happened for my business. I've gotten so many great testimonials and, and emails from people I've never met. I, one guy said, I've read your book twice and I've gotten this and this. And this. I'm like, oh my gosh, someone read the book once is great. Someone reading it twice is shocking. Like, that's so cool. Because I gave up on the law of avoidance. I realized that I was my own bottleneck and I had to crank out that book and get it done to make an impact. Yeah. Well, look here again, uh, listeners. I, I want to highly encourage you to go out and grab a copy of the book from Suck to Success, a guide for extraordinary entrepreneurship uh, by my guest, Todd Palmer. Uh, it, it's one I can understand why somebody would read it a couple of times because there's a lot of great stuff in here. I, I can easily see this being a book that you have sitting nearby with some uh, post-it notes in it, earmarking some great information. Um, you know, thank you for writing the book. I mean, finally getting it finished. Um, I, I think this is a book that, that a lot of people need right now. So I think the timing was, uh, there was a little destiny in play there. Oh, I, absolutely. You know, and that we put in stuff about the COVID experience. We put in stuff about people having to pivot. We, had to, we put in different stories uh, of leaders who, who had to make difficult choices and have tough conversations. Um, yeah, the, the truly the best thing that happened for the book was the COVID. I got it done. I'm really proud of it. I, I can't thank you enough for having me on the show today. 
for, for me to, get to, to talk to your audience about something that, that really was a labor of love. Yeah, no, I really appreciate you coming back on uh, a second time. This has been a great conversation. I uh, really appreciate you being here and having it with me. Uh, before we wrap up, you know, we did cover a lot of ground, but I'm just kind of curious, was there anything that we didn't get a chance to touch on that you want to leave listeners with before we wrap up? You know, I, God, we did touch on so much, which again, I love your, your being on your show and the, and the opportunity to, to not have to talk necessarily in just quick sound bites, but to be able to give a little bit longer narrative to, to satisfy, hopefully, the curiosity of the audience. No, I, again, I would encourage anybody who's interested in the book, please go to FromSuckToSuccess.com, download your free chapter, and, and, and get value out of that. That's why I wanted to give that away so people who maybe are curious but you know a little reluctant to buy the book, they, they get something for, from listening to your show. Um, and, and so, no, I'm just super appreciative and grateful to be here. I, I can't thank you enough. Oh, no, man. Um, so is, is that the best place, you know, if somebody wants to figure out how to work for you, maybe they want to hire you as a coach is from suck to success.com. Is that the best place to do that? Or is there another place to go look? Well, certainly you can go there or you can go to my, my main website, which is extraordinaryadvisors.com. Send me an email, Todd at extraordinaryadvisors.com. Happy to give you 30 minutes of my time to just talk about what's got you stuck. During the, the COVID times, I, I tracked it. I talked to uh, 42 CEOs in 67 days, uh, mm. giving, a, giving them each 30 minutes of my time. And it was some of the best work I've ever been able to, to put into the world. The crazy thing about it was I got zero clients from it. But what I got is a sales force of 42 people who speak very highly of me, which is so wonderful. And they've actually referred me to friends who've become clients. So you just, you know, just show up and give and, and, and be of service to others and amazing things come back to you. Love it. I love it. Well, again, Todd, appreciate it. Uh, thanks for, for spending, goodness, almost an hour this time with, with my listeners. I, I really appreciate the time that you've given over the past two episodes to myself and my listeners. And I know that there's a ton of value and hopefully we've given you a little bit more than 42 um, evangelicals out of this because, uh, you know, it, it's good stuff. It's great stuff that you're doing. And, and I can see why people buy into it the way they do. So appreciate uh, your time. And uh, who knows? Maybe there's an episode three in the future. We'll have to see. <laughs> you never know. Thank you so much, Earl. It was great to be here today. Yeah, but appreciate it. And listeners, thank you very much for being with us. Um, you know, reach out, take advantage of, of that free chapter. Uh, the links obviously are going to be in the show notes. Uh, reach out, get that free 30-minute session. Um, go into it you know, with, with an open mind and, and willing to learn. It's all a coach ever asks is that if you contact us, that you're willing to, to give us a chance to, uh, to, to help. Um, but yeah, take advantage of those. They're going to be in the show notes. If you have anything for me, burden.command at gmail.com. That's burden.command at gmail.com. Uh, keep up with the, the rating, the subscribing, the sharing, the reviewing of the show, uh, it just helps us gain more traction on the charts and helps great guests like Todd get their messages uh, around and reach more people. So thank you for taking that seriously. I really appreciate you all. Uh, thank you for spending some time with Todd and I, and I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Electric acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. 
Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for season two of the Wanna Bet podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that season two starts August 18th. I like Airplane. I know you do, but WannaBet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. So no more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric Acid. Electric Acid. 